This week, a lecture about family life and gender norms in the 1950s. University of Oklahoma professor Jennifer Holland describes some of the demographic changes and societal tensions during this era. For the first time in a hundred years of American history, the age of marriage and motherhood fell. They had been gradually increasing over time. Fertility increased. Fertility had been on a slope downward since 1800. Professor Holland also discusses how the decade is an anomaly for the decades around it versus a continuation of older patterns and those groups left out of its benefits. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Um, we are moving into the post-war period. Um, and we'll be there for the rest of the class, right? We're going to start here in 1945 and go all the way until the end of the 20th century. As you know, this is the U.S. survey, so it's sort of the greatest hits of American history. That's my job. Um, today's lecture, though, is a lecture that you get because of what I am a specialist in, right? This is a lecture that maybe you wouldn't get from another professor in this department teaching this class. Um, so this, this lecture is really going to situate us in the 1950s and really talk about gender and families in that era. And, you know, as all lectures, you should feel free to ask questions in the middle if you want or at the end also. And Zoom people, the questions will be in the chat. So um, of all the nations in the world, at the end of World War II, only the United States emerged stronger and more prosperous than the, when the war began. Europe and Asia, of course, had been devastated by the war, and America's, but America's farms and factories were all intact. Despite social tensions that were ever-present and still during the war, the fight against fascism had seemed to unify Americans and given them a sense of purpose. Victory seemed to confirm their struggles. So there's a new sense of prosperity and uh, some kind of security in the post-war period. But there was also insecurity in this world. Because, of course, after World War II, the United States would be facing a new international enemy, the Soviet Union. And the next 40 years of American history would be defined by the contest with it. Right, which, of course, you know is the Cold War, and we will be talking in detail about that in the coming weeks. But the awesome and destructive power of the atomic bomb, in addition to that ongoing, ever-present Cold War, made Americans feel vulnerable in new ways, 
in the post-war period. And we can see the effects of both this prosperity and the insecurity in ideas about American families in the 1950s. Before I get to the argument, I want to give you a little story um, to situate, situate us in, in these families. So this is a couple. Um, in 1959, they married, and they decided to have their honeymoon in their bomb shelter. Um, this, uh, what they called sheltered honeymoon, was featured in Life magazine, which is why we know about it. Um, they had you know, these pictures of them outside their bomb shelter, surrounded by their consumer goods. And uh, the article joked, fallout can be fun. Uh, and what they had was they would take all these supplies into the bomb shelter, and then they'd have 14 days of what they called unbroken togetherness in the shelter. Um, so the idea here was that this honeymoon and really this marriage, all you needed was consumer goods, sexuality, of course, and total privacy. Um, this was an ideal nuclear family in a nuclear age. They were isolated sexually charged, cushioned by abundance, and protected by the wonders of modern technology. This would be an emblem for what the, these families in the 50s, the ideal of American families would be. These would be families that would supposed to be, uh, would fulfill all its members, but also be essential protections from the outside world. This kind of family would be an essential defense against Russian incursion, Americans believed deeply that Russians had very different values of all kinds. But also, Americans increasingly believed in the 50s that this kind of family would protect against any corrosive elements within the United States. So here's the argument of this lecture. In the 1950s, Americans made the nuclear family central to national identity, demanded conformity to that ideal, and punished those who deviated. The 1950s Americans made the nuclear family central to national identity, demanded conformity to that ideal, and punished those who deviated. Let's talk about some of these big demographic changes that happened in the 50s around. Oh, here, sorry, here's my outline. We're going to uh, start with talk about marriage and families in the 50s, talk about some of these tensions built into ideals in the 50s. Going to talk then about two important groups that, as deviations from this ideal, were punished in different ways. Going to talk about the lavender scare and then uh, talk about unwed mothers. So let me talk about the these big demographic changes that, uh, that affect Americans in the 1950s. So in the 1950s, few Americans remained single, and most married young, and younger than the people who were marrying in the decades before. By 1959, nearly half of all American brides were under the age of 19. And their husbands were usually only a year or two older. 
And this kind of early marriage, like teenage, much more common teenage marriages, you think that parents or experts would be upset by this? Parents and experts in the 1950s very much approved of these young marriages. Less than 10% of Americans in the 50s believed that an unmarried person could be happy in life. Most newlyweds quickly had babies, an average of three, and they usually had those babies in their 20s. Almost all married couples in the United States, regardless of race or class, wanted a large family in the 50s. And this is really a shift. So in the 40s, two children was the ideal for most American families. By 1960, most families wanted four. And of course, this, uh, this massive amount of reproduction produced what becomes famous as the baby boom, right? Baby boomers are the people who are born out of this era. Um, in these families, often, and this was the ideal and uh, the attempted practice, were uh, men and women in these marriages often took distinct and different roles with a male breadwinner and a female homework, a homemaker. So this was mostly a one-income family. Um, and this was made possible in the 1950s for a few reasons. During the 50s, more and more families were able to live in middle-class comfort on one salary. And that's partly because of the post-war economic boom, which I'm going to talk about more um, on Thursday. Also, this is a period where there are strong unions that are sort of spreading wealth into working-class homes in more equal ways. And the government has uh, got a number of programs that are funneling money um, into a variety of homes, which, again, I'm going to talk about on Thursday. So by the mid-50s, nearly 60% of Americans had a middle-class income. And that is just unprecedented in American history up until this point. So to give you a comparison on that, the Roaring Twenties, right, famous for its prosperity, only 31% of Americans had a middle-class income. The 1950s, 60%, right? That's a huge leap. So it's possible economically for a lot more people in the 50s than before. Um, also, there are strong incentives for wives and mothers to stay home. Good childcare was rarely available in the 50s. And a lot of these families are increasingly moving to the suburbs, away from their extended kin networks, who would have been that essential uh, childcare that they would have used in previous generations. Um, so you have a lot of people have fewer access to their relatives to take care of their children. So you have women who simply have to stay home, um, at least in part. And a new co cohort of childcare experts insisted that a mother's full-time attention was necessary for her children's well-being. So this is a period where um, a lot of experts, anything that might be wrong in society, there's a, one of the most common explanations is that something went wrong with that mothering relationship. Either she was working or she was overprotective or overbearing or whatever. So 
just to give you a sense, just to remind us about how unusual the 50s are here, for the first time in 100 years of American history, the age of marriage and motherhood fell. They had been gradually increasing over time. Fertility increased. Fertility had been on a slope downward since 1800. And divorce rates declined. Again, divorce rates had also been on the incline. So the 50s breaks 100-year-old trends in all of these areas. So this was a really unusual moment. And people who were in it, who were living it, acknowledged it to be unusual. Um, people who, Americans in, talked about this particular type of family and this particular type of lifestyle as the modern way. We might often, and people might think of it as sort of a traditional family, but at the time, they were much more likely to think about it as very distinct from the families that came before. Um, they thought of traditional as extended kin networks where you live next to your family, right? These suburban homes where you really relied on just parents and children together, that was modern to people in the 50s. It felt modern to sort of strike out on your own in this way. Also, the labor of mothering in this family was modern and a break from the past as well. So during the 19th century, most middle-class women had servants um, to, who did much of the housework and childcare. And of course, that domestic situation was built on the labor of other people, usually women and sometimes children. Sometimes they were poor people. And of course, in the South, before the Civil War, it was enslaved people who did this kind of labor. But so in the 1950s, middle class women do the bulk of the domestic service. Um, and so 50s housewifery really focus on the wife doing the labor and it being a fulfilling part of the job. So um, the amount of time women spent doing housework actually increased in the 1950s, despite the fact that the 50s is this moment where you have an explosion of convenience foods and also labor-saving appliances. Um, but, and yet, the time that women did housework increased. And childcare absorbed twice the amount of time as it had for women in the 1920s. So in the 50s, surveyors who talked to housewives found that housewives really thought of housework as not just labor, but a medium of expression, a way to express their identities, that it became essential to their sense of self. Now, I want to say men, too, were invited to root their identities in home and family in the 1950s. So, and we can see this very briefly, even thinking about movies that were very popular in the 30s and 40s versus the 50s. So the 30s and 40s, you have a whole range of films um, focused on tough male loners, right? Like Humphrey Bogart over here is our, one of our better examples, right? His kind of film. In the 50s, you have a lot more films that focus on the domestication of men, that the storyline often centered around a good woman who gets a man to settle down. 
And you might think of these if anyone watches old movies, uh, sort of Rock Hudson and Doris Day movies being good examples of those kinds of films. So individuals were supposed to be rooting their identities in home and family, this particular type of modern nuclear family in the 50s. But that family was also absolutely essential to the sense of what it meant to be an American in the 1950s. Because in this time, in this era, um, parenting, family life, your home was your civic duty in many ways. That mothers and fathers were supposed to be creating future patriotic generations that would extend the American way of life. And having a family that operated correctly would prevent people from going astray from the various things that, th that Americans at the time thought the nation stood for, right? And we can see this connection uh, to American nationalism in these very famous debates that happened in 1959 called the Kitchen Debates. So in 1959, Vice President Richard Nixon traveled to the Soviet Union for the American National Exhibition in Moscow. And he's just supposed to be going and looking through this ex exhibition, um, and he is engaging with the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. And in this sort of process of walking through this exhibition, these two men, right, who are already engaged in a deep cold war, um, have a very famous verbal sparring match in the exhibition. And what they're doing in a broad sense is arguing about the relative merits of the American way of life and the, or the relative merits of the Soviet system, right? But what's important is they did not talk about missiles or bombs or modes of government. What they actually talked about was washing machines and televisions and electric ranges. And these became known as the kitchen debates. So what Nixon says is that washing machines were not just uh, evidence of American ingenuity, but they allowed American women a time-saving uh, tool that would allow them to sort of root their lives and have better lives in the home. Nikita Khrushchev countered with pride. He said uh, that, you know, that the Soviets valued female workers um, and they didn't have time for what he called capitalist attitudes towards women. He said that the Soviet system had no time for and no use for full-time housewives. But for Nixon, um, and for a lot of Americans in the 50s, American superiority rested on the ideal of the suburban home, complete with modern appliances and distinct gender roles for uh, family members. That consumer goods and suburban homes proved uh, that America provided an abundant life in an atomic age. And in this home, women could achieve their glory as housewives and men could display their economic success. So in the 50s, perhaps more so than any other moment in American history, 
The idea of home and a particular type of family come to stand in for the nation and for democracy, the values of capitalism and democracy. All right, so I'm going to move into tensions here. I want to talk about how even in a moment where there were really strong ideals around gender and families, there were sort of tensions built into American ideals. The first thing I want to talk about is sexuality. And really, I think that men and women are being um, pulled in multiple directions. But I'm really going to focus on the ways that women are being pulled in multiple directions by the imperatives of this era. So during the Cold War, there was a new emphasis on uh, containing sexuality in order to preserve social order. And we can see this in a whole host of pop culture venues. So, um, for example, sexually liberated women were linked in popular culture to communist subversion. So you have a lot of popular novels who narrate sexy women as infiltrators and spies, right? That sex is, like, very connected to political subversion. And so just like the Soviet threat had to be contained in Eastern Europe, female sexuality had to be contained within marriage or that really risked some kind of social stability and maybe even the free world. Um, others spoke about the, what would happen, a sexual breakdown in the family if more and more women left, which also could lead to some kind of social collapse. But the logic of the time went that the way to prevent communism from seeping in to the American, uh, American society was through the nuclear family. That if you had a wife at home who was caring for her children, raising them to be future patriotic Americans, and also loving her husband, like there was a very a strong ideal of a sexy wife. So this was not an ideal that was absent of sexuality. Sex was absolutely central. She had to, this married couple had to have plenty of sex in the marriage in order to keep a husband from straying. Because if he strayed, if she did not keep him happy, then that would, he might fall into the hands of loose women, sex workers, pornography, or homosexuality, and all of that could lead you straight to communism. And yet, so there's this incredible boundaries and these incredible dangers to excessive sexuality, right? Here's Marilyn Monroe, this torrent who is uncontrollable, right? Um, and yet, uh, there were signs of sexuality everywhere in the 1950s, especially among young people. So there was this hyper-attention to sexuality, this embrace of the importance of sexuality, but it had to be contained. For young people, with, um, through strict dating and rituals of, uh, strict dating rituals and early marriage. And we can even see this in sort of the, the way that fashion's changing in the 1950s. So here we have sort of the straight, more boyish look of the flappers in the 1920s. Um, and then you have sort of the shoulder-padded, strong women of the 30s and 40s here with Katherine Hepburn. And the 50s, though, was a very different kind of fashion ideal that speaks to some of the problems or some of the tensions around sexuality. So in the late 40s and 50s, you have a move towards long, wide skirts, exaggerated bust lines, a pinched waist, 
Um, this is sort of the era that inaugurates the push-up bra, right? Um, but this fashion sort of created an aura of what a historian has called untouchable eroticism. That the body was made into a guarded fortress through girdles and bras that told a man to keep his hands off but promised uh, great things in marriage. And of course, this is Jane Mansfield here, uh, who was a famous star. She's also the mother of Mariska Hargitay for SVU fans out there. Anyway, so perhaps unsurprisingly, when you have this embrace, this, this embrace of sexuality, but these really strict boundaries and these dangers that, a lot, that run alongside of it, that people cross those boundaries, right? Um, sometimes by accident or sometimes in a, in a moment of weakness. Um, so you actually have an increase in premarital sex in the 1950s. And at a moment where it was still hard, pretty hard to get contraception, abortion's illegal, and so you have uh, um, an increase in um, out-of-wedlock pregnancies also in the 1950s. So you also see some tensions around education, um, educational ideals in the 50s. So to do their civic duty, men and women were encouraged to seek higher education during the Cold War. Um, during the Cold War, everyone needed to go to, to college or go to school and go to college to make the United States number one. And so, as a result, in the 50s, you have Americans really work for an improved educational system and greater access to college education. Um, in the name of the Cold War, right? In, in the name of competing with the Soviet Union, and importantly. These reforms uh, really applied to both men and women. So, for example, just one small example here. In 1958, Congress passed the National Defense Education Act, which authorized low-interest, long-term loans to college and graduate students. So this is a funding package in many ways. And it was open and able to be equally accessed by both men and women. This piece, of, this big piece of legislation opening up college, helping people fund college, open to both men and women. But actually once women got to college, textbooks would often warn that there were dangers if women actually competed with men. Magazines of the era called career women a third sex. In 1960, less than 4% of lawyers and judges were women. And just to give you one example of this, when future Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she, she, went, to she went to law school, she graduated at the top of her class of Columbia Law School in 1959, and when she got out, she couldn't find a job. They would not, no one would hire uh, a woman lawyer, even though she was top of her class at Columbia. And this was part of the, the tension built into these educational ex, uh, experiences in the 50s, that women were encouraged to go to college, need to excel as Americans, to put America on top. But when they were in college, and especially when they got out, um, they were not necessarily supposed to embrace careers. The idea was that women were supposed to go to college and go to graduate school and then go home and use that education to educate their children. 
this education was supposed to make them better mothers. We also see tensions around work in the 1950s. So obviously there's a celebration of homemaking and domesticity, but even women who really wanted to be full-time housewives often found themselves having to manage both wage labor and family responsibilities. So in fact, women's employment in wage labor doubles between 1940 and 1960. And 40% of American women who had children between the ages of 6 and 17 do some kind of wage labor in this decade. Why? Why would you go into wage labor, especially for those who are deeply committed to being full-time housewives? Well, because the trappings of the suburban American dream of the 1950s were very expensive. Um, even if you, know, you can potentially get by with one income, maybe not always. And so a majority of these women worked part-time for a specific family goal, a new car, uh, maybe college tuition for their children. And when they were in that wage market, whether they really wanted to be there or not, they faced discrimination. So at this time, you found a job. Often people found a job through want ads in the newspaper. Um, it was like very old school, right? But if you look to the want ads, what you would find are two columns, uh, help wanted male and help wanted female. And so all jobs were divided by gender in the, in the newspaper. Um, and uh, so women were sort of already sort of shuttled into certain kinds of work. Um, these female fields include, included uh, maids, secretaries, teachers, nurses, and often those uh, professions were lesser paid. And overall, female full-time workers in this era earned about an average of 60% of what a full-time male worker was paid at the time. So even for people who really invested themselves and believed in this nuclear family ideal in the 50s, faced these tensions. Right? Even for people who were totally on board, wanted to be a part of this, they still would be facing some kind of pressure within that ideal at some point in their life most often. But now I'm going to turn to two big groups who very clearly fall outside of this nuclear family in the 1950s and are really punished as a result. So the first group I'm going to talk about are gay men and lesbians. So as I mentioned in a previous lecture briefly, there was awareness of queer people, especially by urban Americans in the early 20th century. But it's after World War II where that awareness of homosexuality explodes across the nation. People are just like the, the rate of people talking about gay people, being familiar with some terms, just explodes after the war. That gay, gay men and lesbians receive a different kind of public attention after World War II. And importantly, in this era, they become a new kind of enemy in the 1950s. And I could give you a million examples of this, but I'm just going to stick to one. So I'm going to talk about an event called the Lavender Scare. And it's connected to the Red Scare, which I'm going to talk more in depth about later. 
um, but uh, sort of originates out of the same, the same uh, process. So Joseph McCarthy, a famous senator from Wisconsin, led witch hunts um, in the early 50s looking for communists in the federal government and also in Hollywood. And he's really feeding into this strong national paranoia um, that there could be communists all among you, that it was like a fifth column, that you never quite knew, but you always had to be on guard, that communists might be your neighbor, your teacher, your grocer. So in 1950, Joseph McCarthy uh, claimed that there were 205 card-carrying communists in the federal government. And the State Department replies, they're like, no, 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 not communists. They said they have no communists, but they do say they forced out what they called security risks, and among those were 91 gay people. And then you have a public, a press, that sort of takes up this, this piece of information and says this is evidence that the entire government was infiltrated with what they called at the time sex perverts. And it led to the firing of thousands of government employees. So in 1950, many thought that gay people posed more of a threat to national security than communists in the United States. And you have agencies across the country boasting that they were firing up to one gay person a day, which was more than double the rate for those considered politically disloyal. So why? What is the logic of this? Um, so there were these two categories that federal agencies were working with to ferret out people they didn't want to be working there. One was those who they considered disloyal. And these were people who would be guilty of espionage or who had connections to allegedly subversive organizations like the Communist Party in the United States. So the people who were disloyal in that category, the government agencies believed they had a willful desire to betray state secrets. But there was another category, and this is really where uh, gay people fell. That is the security risk. So a security risk were uh, a person who had behaviors or associations that might lead them to inadvertently or unwillingly betray secrets in the future. And so the various groups of people who fell into this category were uh, alcoholics, people who talked too much, um, and the homosexual. Um, however, only the homosexual was always a security risk. All the other categories of security risk had qualifications. Like you could be an alcoholic and still not always be a security risk. Um, and most government efforts to ferret out security risks focused on gay people. And the logic here was that gay people were supposed to be so gregarious, outgoing, that they were unable to keep secrets. They said, the, the, the State Department said they were often alcoholics um, because of internalized shame. And they said they were easily blackmailed. And all of those things together made them a security risk. And this really escalates very quickly. 
1953, President Eisenhower issues an executive order barring gay men and lesbians from federal jobs. And quickly, state and municipalities following, follow suit, in implementing their own bans on queer people being employed in their agencies. And all of those agencies begin watching their employees closely for gay tendencies. Right? These are not people who are out in our modern sense. These are people who are private, but you have employers who are now trying to figure out whether they are gay. So these purges that are from the federal government all the way down that begin in 1950 um, continue to be standard practice long after McCarthy lost his public authority. So when you get to that story, McCarthy's story is very brief in a certain way. He leads this mass um, you know, sort of movement, and then he sort of falls from grace um, within a few years. But that is not the case with this outcome of this lavender scare. These practices last well into the 1970s. Because really, in this era, in the 1950s, questions of sexuality and gender merge with loyalty in this profound way and make queer people an enemy of the state in this and many other instances in the 1950s. So the other group I want to talk about who are violating um, the, the rules and roles of the 1950s are unwed mothers. So besides homosexuality, non-marital childbearing was treated as the most profound violation of the ideals of the era. All unwed mothers uh, were punished in this era and in the decades after, but there were very different punishments and responses um, focused on white unwed mothers and women of color who were unwed mothers. I'm going to talk you through this here. So for white women um, who were unwed mothers, often, you know, sometimes they were teenagers, sometimes they were adults, the growing discipline of psychiatry was utilized to contain this deviant act. White women, white unwed mothers were diagnosed as being particularly um, immature or more commonly had a temporary mental illness. So in 1965, two Harvard psychiatrists wrote, quote, every unwed mother is to some degree a psychiatric problem, the victim of mild, moderate, or severe emotional or mental disturbance. So I want to say here, in this vision of uh, where unwed pregnancy came from, there's really no men in the story at all, right? There's no man involved in, in the act of getting pregnant, that it was a woman's pathology, right, that she allowed herself to get pregnant because of her mental illness. So she's really made into a patient. So for white women, they have shame and this temporary mental illness, but there was a process, a coercive and punitive process that allowed them to be rehabilitated and redeemed. Okay, so the first, oh, sorry, let me go back here. So the first step is that you had to, rem that these women had to be removed from their homes, right? Um, that they, whatever, they went to their aunts, they went on a vacation to their aunt's house for six months, or they went on a vacation, but really they went usually to a maternity home, like these Florence Crittenden homes. Um, there were about 47 Florence Crittenden homes across the country. They were about a quarter of all 
uh, maternity homes. And you know, Florence Crittenden homes alone house about 10,000 unwed mothers each year. But Florence Crittenden homes and many maternity homes only would allow white women to come in. So you can see already how the sort of structures of the institution allow this path only for white unmarried women. So she had to be removed from her home, go to the maternity home, and once there, there was a very strict pathway to go to to get redeemed. She had to express remorse. She had to say that she knew she was wrong, that this was a terrible thing, and she had to demonstrate her readiness, and this is a quote, um, to adapt to a heterosexual adjustment on a realistic basis. And this is key. The second step is she had to relinquish her child for adoption. Um, the maternity home counseled her that she to give up her child for adoption, and 85% of all the women who come through maternity homes did. This protected her identity, allowed her to not be an unwed mother when she got out, but also it allowed white infertile couples access to a white baby who could then allow them to fulfill their family ideals. Some women who came to maternity homes really imbibed this. Um, one pregnant girl wrote, this is a quote, she said, she didn't think any unmarried girl had the right to keep her baby. I know I don't have that right. But many others didn't want to give up their children for adoption. And, that, and, and a whole range of practices were used to try to get them to. Some women were told after labor that their babies died and they were just taken from them. Um, many were pressured to sign away their rights either during labor or immediately afterwards. But she ha in order to, to be redeemed, she had to give her child up for adoption. And of course, have no, no connection to it after that. Like there was no open adoptions after, um, in this era. She also had to uh, show her renewed commitment to marriage, that she had to commit to herself, um, that her commit that her destiny was uh, her life as a wife and a mother and a real woman. So a lot of the schooling that happens in these maternity homes is all about preparing a girl to become uh, a wife and a mother. And then through this pathway, she'd be redeemed for the marriage market, right? And then she could go on to have a proper family of her own. So historians have estimated that these coercive practices were used on about one and a half million women in the United States between the 1940s, um, and this, these extend really up until the late 60s, early 70s. So for women of color, um, they were largely excluded from these maternity homes and this whole process of rehabilitation and redemption. And um, commenters at the time, of course, people were talking constantly about unwed pregnancy and where it's coming from. Um, most um, American sort of venues define their pregnancies as a product of family and community disorganization that this was a community dysfunction that produced unwed pregnancy for women of color, or it was narrated as a product of biology. And of course, this built on long-standing racist stereotypes around women of color, and especially black women, as both hypersexual, without consciousness about sex, and also natural mothers. So 
in a total inversion of what happens with white women if a woman of color, and especially a black woman, wanted to give up her child for adoption, she was often prevented from doing so by state agencies. There are many cases in this era where black women attempt to legally give up their children for adoption and then are not allowed to, but also are charged with desertion as a result. So really, um, there's very few pathways for redemption, especially outside of communities of color, that, that women of color really are only punished for their, um, for their unwed pregnancies. And we can see this actually escalating into the 60s and 70s as women of color and their children get increasingly blamed for uh, relying too much and sapping state funds. So you have a variety of ways they're punished. I mean, they're, it's, it was, if you had a child out of wedlock, you were easily evicted from public housing. You have a variety of public agencies who punish out of child, lock, uh, child rearing um, and sort of excluding them from benefits. But I think one of the other major ways that we can see women of color punished for unwed pregnancies is a massive increase in forced sterilizations that occur the 50s, 60s escalating into the 1970s. So if I just want to take you back a little bit, if you remember when we talked about the eugenics movement in the early 20th century, remember there were states that passed sterilization laws where the state would choose, you know, with certain rubrics about people who then would be sterilized you know, by a state agency. But that is not how these women in the post-war period are sterilized. There's not a law that allows a state to sterilize these women. This, this massive increase in forced sterilizations in the post-war period was more of a de facto trend. This was something that many doctors and hospitals sort of took up on their own. Um, and what would happen was a woman of color would go to a hospital to give birth um, and there, again, during labor, during the heat of labor, right, the pain of labor, be pressured to sign on to a sterilization. But as commonly or even more commonly, a doctor would just simply do the sterilization without permission. Many people were not told that they were sterilized until they were released from the hospital. Fannie Lou Hamer, who's a very famous civil rights activist who we'll talk about later, um, in 1965, she claimed that 60% of the women who came out of her local Mississippi hospital had all been sterilized. They became so common that people locally called them Mississippi appendectomies. They were that common, just like removing your appendix. This happened all over the country. Um, and really, it doesn't end in the 50s. It escalates into the 60s and 70s. And in fact, you have this become so much a part of the experience of reproductive health care for women of color that it affects women who were too young to even get pregnant. You have young women who are sterilized as young as 12 and 14 because doctors imagine they will be unwed mothers in the future. And as I said, this really affects... Um, black women, Latinas, and Native women. The Indian Health Service is one of these agencies that is uh, at the heart of doing a lot of these forced sterilizations on Native women. 
Uh, it's hard to tell because this is like a lot of people feel shame about being sterilized, but estimates say that a quarter of all Native women in this country were forcibly sterilized in this post-war era. Um, one person found that all the, the um, full-blood, even though it's a complicated term, members of the Kaw tribe in Oklahoma were sterilized. But we know between the 1970 and 1980, the number of children born to Native American parents dropped by a third. But because the logic of unwed pregnancy for, for women of color was rooted in communities and especially in biology, that their deviance was imagined as permanent and only could be addressed through punitive and often biological solutions. So I want to end here and say that this family, which is so important for us, we often imagine it as an ahistorical family. But in fact, I want to suggest to you, it's a very historical family, one that's absolutely necessary to, for us to understand the 1950s. It was a product of this era and absolutely central to so many parts of it, and also will set up so many contestations around families, gender, and sexuality in the coming decades. Any questions about that? This family, was it considered progressive at the time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great, yeah, progressive, modern, the way that families should go. Like, this was a, an embrace. Like, you know, this was not a partisan family at all. Like, people of all parties embraced this version of family. Um, are the underlying words, were, like, those actual underlying words, or was that just a font? Um, there were four underlying words, and I will email them to you. Any other questions? All right. Thank you so much and have a good day. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Interested in hearing more about history, literature, and public affairs? Check out BookNotes Plus. Taking the concept from Brian Lamb's long-running BookNotes TV program, the podcast offers listeners more books and authors. BookNotes Plus features a mix of new interviews with authors and historians, along with some old favorites from the archives. The platform may be different, but the goal is the same. Give listeners the opportunity to learn something new. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.